0: Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host Rob Hanna. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Jardine. Sean qualified as a solicitor in 1985 specializing in litigation. He qualified as a mediator in 2001 being an early adopter of mediation. Sean has a wealth of experience in law firm management as a commercial director and CEO of Reviton's LLP. With a strong interest in marketing and business development, he has created multiple successful legal teams including property management, debt recovery, catastrophic injury and leasehold enfranchisement. Sean is now a non-practicing solicitor and after retiring from his law firm in 2021, he created Big Yellow Penguin. Sean has also appeared on numerous podcasts and is the author of his book, Ditch the Billable Hour implementing value-based pricing in a law firm. So with that all said, a very big warm welcome, Sean. Thank you very, very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects, experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law if you've seen it?
1: I haven't seen it, I must confess. However, I have heard people talk about it. And I think that any legal drama usually is a one in terms of how it relates to the law. I usually spend a lot of my time shouting at the television if a lawyer comes on saying that wouldn't happen in real life. And I was recently doing that on the... Fool Me Once uh, Netflix drama with Joanna Lovely. I was shouting about the lawyer on that. So um, I I will give all legal dramas a one, and that way I can't upset anyone.
0: Yeah, and funny you should mention that I have also seen For Me Once as well. So uh, there we go. I I enjoyed seeing Joanna Lumley play a slightly different role, way away from from comedy. But with that all said, we must talk about you, Sean. I very briefly brushed over in the introduction your your amazing background and experience. But I'd love for you to tell our listeners more, a bit about your background and and career journey. Okay, well, um, I studied law at university
1: when I went there in 1980. Uh, uh, Show my age. Um, in the first term of the first year, I was told, along with all my classmates, you have to apply for law school or the bar school. And if you don't apply now in this first term, you won't get in in three years' time, because at that time you could only do your solicitor's final exams at one of four colleges or the inns of court if you wanted to be a barrister. And so, uh. J- Being a great believer in fate, um, I did what most good lawyers would have done in that situation. And I flipped a coin, head solicitor, tails, barrister. (laughs) It came up heads. So I applied for the the College of Law, uh, ended up doing my degree, went to the College of Law, met some good friends there and um, had a trade article clerk in those days. I I was a two year article clerk, Um, split my articles in a fit of peak after one year and went to work for another firm. And then was if you like a, a, a I was always a litigation lawyer, met a guy who became my business partner at one of the firms and we left deepest darkest Surrey and ended up in North Oxfordshire and set up a law firm. So that's how it all came about, really.
0: Yeah, and a fascinating journey. I would I would love to know more about where the interest in litigation specifically span from. What what was it that made you want to specialise in there? I think
1: it was always up. Uh, I, I i I like advocacy, I like legal argument. My wife would say I like legal argument a bit too much um, the, i I like the idea of the cut and thrust of winning cases, and when I had my second years of my articles, I went to a firm in the East End of London, actually at that time to do uh commercial work. But on the day that I turned up there, the managing partner announced to the firm that they were going to become a commercial work. Up until then, they'd been a very big legal aid practice. And all the legal aid lawyers, who were some amazing lawyers, did brilliant work, but very committed to legal aid, upped and left. So all of a sudden, I'm there as a second-year article clerk, and I've now given a caseload of cases, really, that I didn't really have the experience to deal with. But above my pay grade. But it, it was just wonderful. And I just ended up effectively doing uh, litigation for a, a couple of years. I did one will. I did one conveyancing transaction so my articles could get signed off. And um, the rest is history, really. I ended up as a litigation lawyer, which is what I wanted to be all the time.
0: I love that. And it's a great example of sometimes, you know, it's, it's that's a sink or swim scenario in many respects, you know, you're in this environment, you've sort of got to grow into the role, uh, you know, because there's no, no other option. So I, I, I love that. And you've always been an early adopter. And we're going to talk about your book shortly as well. And, you know, your view on the, the legal industry and pricing. But you are an early adopter of mediation back in 2001. So how have you seen the legal landscape change over the years and what impact specifically has mediation had and continues to have on the legal industry?
1: Well, me- mediation, I got into it originally doing community mediation where Thames Valley Police were doing a scheme where they were getting called out to, uh, you know, social housing estates and things like that quite a lot to deal with neighbour disputes. And so they funded uh, people to train as mediators. And I put my name forward and said, I'd quite like to do that. And I've always enjoyed you know, uh, mediation and de- helping to resolve arguments. And so all of a sudden, I'm now out at doing these quite, some of them were very acrimonious neighbour disputes, people at war. Um, and then mediation became fashionable and, I think it was probably in about 90, 1992, maybe, they did a first pilot of mediation in courts. And someone said, oh, look, would you be the coordinator for the local county court? So I started d- doing some mediations during mediation week. And I'm a, I'm a great believer that, you know, all cases settle, right? All cases settle is a very small minority, are settled by the judiciary. And when I'm a mediator, I will I will say to both parties, there is four versions of the truth. There's the claimant's version. There's the defendant's version. There's the version that God saw, and no one can call God as a witness. And there is the version the judge will decide. And nobody knows what that's going to be. And it's always that kind of thing where, you know, quite often in mediation and i love i i I still love doing boundary disputes and neighbor disputes which a lot of mediators shy away from and that's because if you have a boundary dispute or a neighbor dispute it's never about the law it's never about the fence it's never about the hedge it's why you have fallen out with your neighbor and that can be something very different and i've over the years i've done loads of neighbor disputes and it is never about the fence. It is something, it might be, I'm jealous. It might be, I don't like you. It might be, I think you're a snob. It might be, you wear a shell suit. It might be, you know, you're richer than me. And or, you know, and these are the drivers. And unpicking that is fascinating. Yeah, it's good. I really, thank you for asking me the question, because it's not a side of my business I ever get to talk about very often. But I do genuinely love doing that kind of thing.
0: No and, and it's great because like I said off there, you know there's so much wisdom we're going to try and unpack because you have had such a you know um, varied career and done so many things and you know I think it's important particularly for the next generation current practicing lawyers to to learn from some of your lessons. Are you tired of the current legal practice management software hitting you with outrageous price increases? Well, it's time to put an end to the renewal pain and discover Clio, the trusted legal practice management solution for thousands of UK solicitors. Did you know that some providers have recently increased their prices by staggering 300%? Don't let this drain your budget any longer. With Clio, you'll experience cost-effective flexibility, transparent pricing, and a smooth migration process. Choose a plan that fits your needs and budget with no long-term commitments. Monthly billing cycles ensure you only pay for what you use. And guess what? Plans start from just £49 per user per month. No hidden fees or surprises. Say goodbye to price hikes and hello to trusted software and one of the other lessons I want to talk about is law firm management because you've included roles such as a CEO, a commercial director and you know what challenges did you face leading a sort of top 200 law firm and and how did you navigate them?
1: Oh well I think probably one of the biggest challenges I faced was in 2016 where Bredersons was a 200 year old law firm and it had 200 years of bad habits really where it had you know we, we didn't have very clear role profiles. People would join, would more or less had been allowed to write what they wanted to do. I don't want to work for that person. I will do this. We did a, a big change management project, which was making about 130 staff apply for their jobs again and apply for a clearly defined role profile. This is a job. This is what you are being employed to do. Only apply for this job if you fancy doing what it is. And we set out, and with this huge amount of work is setting out role profiles for all of the roles in the job, and we could identify what the if you were to be promoted, what the next role might look like. So when we started interviewing people, I could say to a trainee solicitor here's here's the role for the trainee solicitor, actually here's the role for the assistant solicitor, here's the role for an associate, senior associate, partner, head of department, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. and Part of that process was we had role profiles for lawyers, which were different insofar as if you think of an American goalpost in American football, you have a vertical upright. That is the beginning of your law career. The young trainee starts at ground level and goes up the upright post. After three years, they hit. They come to a crossbar, and if you at that crossbar, you then have to decide. Where are you going to go? How do you want your future in law to be? Do you want to just do law every day and be a brilliant lawyer? In which case, you'll go up the right-hand side of the crossbar. And we will invest in your training courses and make you the best collective enfranchisement lawyer, best litigation lawyer, the best wills and probate lawyer we can. You will be trained to do brilliant law. If, however, you want to manage peoples and teams within that environment, you're going to go up the left hand side of the goalpost and we're going to train you about you still get to do some of your courses. You're still going to have a case load, You're still going to do law, but you're going to learn how to manage people. Deal with the return to work interviews, deal with the appraisals, deal with recruitment, help deal with disciplinaries, whatever it might be. You are going to be trained in people management because in most law firms. There's only one vertical stick. It's you go up, you become a good lawyer, you earn lots of fees, they'll make you a partner, they'll make you a head of department. And what tends to happen is people have no management experience, no management training. And when we rolled out this new model in 2016, and we had the goalpost model, I had I remember a lovely, lovely guy, a lovely guy I worked with, and he, he was leading a team. And he came up to me afterwards and said, Sean, I just want you to know that I should be going up the right-hand side of this. I should be managing people. And <laughs> no, I just said, yeah, I, I, it's okay. I, I said, I'm really pleased that you said that because I know. You know, and he was in the wrong place managing people. And we ended up getting an associate to manage that team. He was just absolutely fantastic lawyer, absolutely brilliant lawyer. But we trained people. We didn't want to play people out of position. And that is, I suppose, one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced. And I think the other thing that I did, which I'm, I'm still quite proud of, is one day everybody came into the office and on their desk was a, a, a white business card that said carte blanche. And then I later sent an email around to everybody that had some staff meetings and said, you have been given carte blanche and you have carte blanche to challenge anything. Tell us if something is going wrong. Please don't assume that I'm going to know. Please come and tell me about this because it is very important. And and that works very well. And I remember one of our, it was a trainee solicitor. She wasn't even a trainee solicitor. She was doing her Law Society finals. She called me up on our values, on the values of our business. Because when I took over as CEO, we had five values. I had a, a, a staff meeting with the partners and managers in a hotel. I had three bottles of champagne on the desk. I said, "Can someone name five football teams? And somebody did. I said, "Can someone name five blockbuster films? And somebody did. I said, "Can somebody name the five values of Bretherton? Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. Four and a half minutes. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues had a go. Uh, And she got four out of the five, and I my point was how can we, how can we say we've got values if we, as the partners, don't even know what they are? So you can't live them. And so our values were ASAP. PE was the acronym. We value ambition. We value customer. We value excellence. We value personnel development, and we value each other. Those were the values. And if you couldn't, I would wander around. I'd speak. Shirley, what's it? Well, can you remind me what the values are? Can you remind me what the values are? And it would be if you were interviewed for a promotion, I remember interviewing one lady and I said, oh, could you just remind me which of all our values, can you name the values and can you tell me which one's most important to you? She said, I knew you were going to ask me that question. I said, oh, brilliant. I said, Great. She said, I don't know them. And she'd been with the firm about 20 years and I didn't promote her. Because, you know, it's important.
0: Well, it's so true, isn't it? I talk a lot about this, you know, I did a post recently sort of you know culture each strategy for breakfast but having that sort of culture and values otherwise they're they're words with no meaning and I think there's some real lessons in what you shared there that you know tenure doesn't always necessarily mean people are are the best for that particular point of the business so in the legal recruiting industry or the recruitment industry the world I've been in it was very much the same as the law you make lots of deals you do lots of money you suddenly manage all these people and you're actually a completely wrong skill set unless you have that training development mentoring, continuous mentoring as well. And I loved how you talked about it. Don't play our people out of place. You're not going to play a defender in an attacking role. And a you, know, you absolutely have no one else to do it, you'd rather almost leave a gap because it can create more friction. So really good lessons there in terms of, um, you know, not only ensuring the right culture. And then I love the, the top-down leadership in terms of saying, your voice matters, you know, here is carte blanche, you know, please don't assume we know everything because I say anyone who thinks they know everything, really doesn't know anything you know the reality is we're all learning we're all going to make mistakes leaders don't have all the answers but actually being an open and inclusive leader and actually being you know very very keen to connect with your people and actually listen to them is a super valuable lesson so love that sean and that's why again i wanted to unpack it all
1: yeah i'll just close it out i said
0: the trade
1: the 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 the, she was a paralegal she was doing her solicitor's finals part-time now and she came to me and she bought a friend and she said, I want to have a carte blanche meeting with you. I'm going to bring the card. I said, you don't need to bring the card, but you can bring the card. If you want. And so she came in and she said, I am doing my solicitors finals. I do them part time. I have to take 10 exams a year. And I don't get study leave. And in fact, I don't even get the time off to do the exams. And I said, I didn't even know that you could do these exams part time. You know, I said, I didn't know that was a thing. And she said, and she took a deep breath and said, and Sean, it doesn't value ambition because I'm, I'm an ambitious person. That's why I'm here. It doesn't value customer because I'm trying to be the best lawyer so I can provide the best value. It doesn't value excellence. And it doesn't value personnel development. And it doesn't value each other. And I just thought, and I was so pl- I, I could have hugged her, I didn't, no, no training for hugged in this in this scenario. But I just thought, bingo. Because if if a paralegal can come and call out the CEO on the values, and I, I got the head of HR and I said, does this go on? Da, da, da. And she said, Oh, well, I've got the go and explain. And we sorted it within 48 hours. She had all a holiday. It was just we didn't know. And that's that's we Never assume the management know what's going on in every part of every aspect of the business and draw it to their attention. Have carte branch. And that's why part of my penguin brand is carte branch to change because we've got to change.
0: And it's funny you should mention that so it's going to be my next question. But I want to kind of wrap on the end of, of that because that's a very, very, very good lesson as far as I'm concerned because that conversation In the wrong environment can be in the kitchen and can be in the bars and can be with colleagues and could be negative energy, but to have the confidence and openness to go and speak to the CEO and feel comfortable to create that culture where actually what potentially could cause attrition and retention levels to, 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 to go through the roof could actually be the complete opposite and then they can transform change and actually. You through understanding our business, our values have created change and not only for yourself, but for others. So, I just love everything about that story. So, thanks once again for sharing it. But let's talk then about the Big Yellow Penguin, launched, I believe, in 2021. What is it for people who may not be familiar? What is the Big Yellow Penguin and what is the main aim? Okay. Well, the Big Yellow Penguin it came out of the change management project because, you
1: know, I was a litigation lawyer, became a CEO. I didn't understand change management. I had to read some books. And one of the leading books on change management is by John Cotter of the Harvard Business School. And it's called Our Iceberg is Melting. It's a story about eight steps to change management, leading to a change of culture. And I bought 40 copies of that book and distributed it amongst all my partners and managers. I said, look, we've got to read this book. It's perfect for lawyers because you can read it in an hour. It's got pictures of penguins in it. It's a story about the penguins. If they don't find a new iceberg, they're going to die there's a penguin who gets stuff done that's called alice there's a penguin called fred who stops spots the immediate problem with the iceberg there's a penguin called no no who goes oh no 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 that'll never work you know and it became very easy to talk about change and use characters of penguins uh so i then as i (laughs) as i've done it i then bought a penguin suit and then I have addressed three legal conferences dressed as a penguin while waving this book to say, guys, we've got to change our business model. That Our iceberg is melting. We as lawyers have got to change what we're doing and the way we deliver it. And um, so when I retire from Redditors, I, I must confess, I did originally incorporate Sean Jardine Consulting Limited. When the certificate came through from company's house, I thought, this is so boring, I'm going to have to kill myself. Um, so I then incorporate. I changed the name and called it Big Yellow Penguin because it's about change. I'm six foot four. Yellow penguins do exist, but they're very rare. And ev- you've only got to stand up in one or two legal conferences dressed as a penguin and people tend to remember you. So that's how it all came about. And people like the name, like the brand. And, uh, and I can wander around the country with an inflatable penguin called Declan. So that's what I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's different as well, you know, and to stand out, you've got to be different. Um, I want to sort of talk a bit more then for, for advice you'd pass on because you know, you talk there, big yellow penguin, assist lawyers, law firms, wanting to embrace the 21st century. What is your advice to those with law firms who want to adopt new practices and ensure they keep up to date with the hedger changing legal landscape, which let's be frank is changing at the speed of knots? Oh.
1: Read lots. Go to go to seminars, go to conferences, listen, listen to people. Uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough on the 6th of December last year, I spoke at the Westminster Legal Forum, which was AI and the law. And Richard Susskind did the k- keynote address. And then you have Matthew Hill from the Legal Services Board there. And it was just staggering hearing what's what's coming down the line in terms of AI and regulation and law and things like that. And you will have heard this a hundred times. I think the law firm owners, managers, partners, we spend too much time working in the business when we should be working on the business. And if you can make time to just read, think, learn, debate with people about things, that's, and and we're all time poor, I know that. But um, that's what I, I think. That be- I, I, I never stop reading books, my, I, or, or blogs, or links to things, because I, I, oh, I can't remember who said it, but he said, if I buy a book for twenty dollars and I get one idea out of it, it's the best. I, I have saved myself a fortune, and I'm a great believer in that. You know, and nothing I did at ha you know, was new and groundbreaking it was just applying what was kind of best practice there's a great book it's 12 years old now mitch kalowski canadian lawyer wrote it a great person for your podcast actually in the future if you can get him reimagining legal services in the 21st century and mitch as a lawyer in canada became a technology professor at a university somewhere in canada and he wrote a very pithy novel about if all if if lawyers used all of the technology that was available twelve years ago to its full potential, what would the what how and what would the law firm be like? And I read that and I thought, oh, that became a blueprint for me. I thought, and and it was in that book that it had reference to value-based pricing, and I thought, never heard about that. What's that? And it was that kind of stuff where I would never have started this journey if. I used to have lunch with a guy, a marketing guy, law firm marketer. And the deal was whoever got the most out of the meeting paid for lunch. OK, so it, I would have this guy chap and I, I mentioned him in the beginning of the book, a guy called Simon White, very bright guy. And he said to me one day, Sean, you've got to read this book. Mitch Kalowski's book. It's a brilliant book. Order it. So I ordered it, read it. thought, Oh, my God, this is brilliant. So. Learn, read. Make time for yourself. Think about your business. Try and spend some time working on the business. And if you can't do that, look at non-executives, look at people who can come in and do, you know, kickstart something or get a debate going. Because there's, there's a lot of good people out in this sector. Just go and find them.
0: Yeah, and you, you don't know what you don't know as, as well. And you make a great example of, um, you know, it's been said time and time again, but the best investment you can make is the one in yourself. And I remember vividly when I started this podcast and people just didn't get it. Like, why on earth is a legal recruiting business doing a, a podcast? But to the point of working on your business, you know, you're building a brand. I'm learning from thought leaders every episode, I'm soaking up the sponge. I'm then being able to regurgitate that, build a community, get myself out there, build a brand get organic marketing and traction and so on and so on and so on and then you suddenly you know bigger opportunities and Thomson reuters and linkedin and all these things suddenly happen but through working on your business and actually collaborating and you know podcasting for me is my medium of learning and i love interviewing people and learning and you know maybe like you say it's reading maybe you say it's going to attending conferences maybe it's a whole spread of them but the main thing is you've got to put in the time and it's worth putting in that time to invest in yourself Are you a mid-sized law firm looking to thrive in 2024 and beyond? Look no further. Clio has just released their highly anticipated 2024 Legal Trends Report for mid-sized law firms. This comprehensive report is packed with actionable insights that will empower your firm to stay competitive in the ever-changing legal landscape. Discover how to enhance your billing and collections, harness the power of AI tools, and leverage cloud-based technology for success. Download the 2024 Legal Trends Report for mid size law firms today visit clio.com forward slash uk forward slash resources to learn more with time we have come to a very special point sean where we must talk about your book of ditch the billable hour implementing value-based pricing you touched on it there in a law which is now out very much available. So folks, we'll be sharing lots of information about how you can get access to that and um, with this episode. But what was your inspiration behind the book? And tell us more, Sean.
1: Okay, well, I, in 2017, I went to
0: uh,
1: Dallas. And uh, a friend of mine in Australia who I'd met through LinkedIn, who was saying uh, he knew I was interested in value-based pricing. And I was asking him lots of questions. He was leading the way down in Australia. He said, look, you've got to come to Dallas, there's this conference, it'd be great. So I went to Dallas in 2017. And uh, one of the leading value-based pricing thinkers is a guy called Ron Baker, written five, six books on the subject, uh, his account. And it was aimed more at professional services, uh, aimed at professional services, Ron's book, not law specifically. And I went out there, I met lawyers from all over the world. But I was the only Brit there. I was the only Brit. And I thought, Oh, hello. Anyway, I met all these people, Australians, Canadians, and I kept in touch with them. And then I thought, well, look, I'd like to learn more about this. I think if we can, you know, don't get me wrong, as a litigator, I was pretty good at timesheets. I can fill them in, you know, don't worry about me. But I know that people struggle. And I know that when you say to a client, what's your hourly rate? And they you say £300, £500, or if you're an American lawyer working at Shots or Descharts, whatever they're called, this week, $2,500 an hour. And as soon as you start coming up with hourly rates like that, clients worry about time. How long is this going to take? So I got into value-based pricing. I then was in the fortunate position to do that as a pilot of my old firm. Uh, and we did that. And then when I decided to retire from private practice, I thought, how did I implement that back at my old firm? How can I turn that into a methodology and then how can I communicate that to the wider world? And so really, that's what I spent a bit of time doing. I was fortunate to go and I've, I've worked in the UK. I, I, I've spoken, as I'm sure you have, with thousands. If you think of how many the reach of your podcast, thousands of thousands of people have, have heard me talk about this. Fifty three have put their hands in their pockets to say, actually come in and help do this. And I like working with firms where they let me survey their staff before I go in and and an anonymous survey about their pricing confidence because you get some fantastic responses to that. One question I can tell you is part of the survey is, I believe that uh, my colleagues and I believe that this firm should be profitable. Now, you'd like to think that's a good, it's an easy question. Everybody should think that. One firm I worked with, 13.5 million turnover, 60% of their staff thought that, only 60. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, there's a learning and development point here, which is we need to educate our people about how a law firm works, because we might have been confusing profitable with, I don't want the uh, the owners to have super profit, but the business has got to be profitable if we're going to expand it, if we're going to pay wages and everything else. So... I thought, well, let's reverse engineer my process. And I thought, if you're going to do a change management journey, you should have steps of change management. And guess what I followed? Cotter. I was back full circle to the penguins. I based this on Cotter's eight steps, and I openly mentioned that in the introduction. It's based on John Cotter's eight steps of change management. And one of the advantages of doing that is, because lawyers are naturally conservative, risk averse, criticism, et cetera, et cetera. They say, what does this guy know about change management? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's based on Cotter's methodology. So you're going to be all right because law is not that special. So, um, yeah, that's how it came about, really. And um, I wrote the book, came up with what I call the eight P point plan and set to encourage people to to do this change management program because it is. It is a change management program to implement cost of existing business. It is not a memo from a CEO in what I call Jean-Luc Picard syndrome, where someone says, make it so. You know, it is a do a pilot, roll it out with teams, and then it's better for clients, better for lawyers and better for law firm owners.
0: And that's what I want to, to talk about. And people are probably going to be listening and enjoying the conversation. But we do pride ourselves on really simplifying things to, for people just to make sure they really go away and take action on what they learn. So in a very simple term, we've talked about it, but what would you mind sort of your definition or explaining value-based pricing in, in, in the most simplistic terms? And then talk us through after that, those eight steps of change management from Cotters, because I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Okay, right. In a
1: nutshell... Value-based pricing is, it's not the six minutes it takes me to give you the answer to your question. It is the six minutes of the 36 years. How do I charge for that? Okay. So that's what what it is. It is not time-related. So if I know I can save you a million pounds, but I can do that in 20 minutes, it should not be one-third of my hourly rate. And it is coming up with just a price that is fair. It is then... I, as a lawyer, want to give you as a consumer a choice. I would think when we go to the car wash, we choose a menu, gold, silver, bronze. And I am a great fan of providing customers with choice of legal services. You're all going to get a competent service. It's all going to be compliant. But if you think about the, if David Beckham knocked on your door and said, I want you to do my conveyancing, how would you deliver your Platinum service Beckham esque type conveyancing, uh, and then I've come up working with lawyers fifty features in a gold service. Then you strip out some of those and make a silver service. You strip out some of the silver and you have a bronze service. So you can do this. Now lawyers don't think they can all the time, but you can. So it is, it is not limiting it to time, and it is creating options for clients. Because if I give you a, a Price, and it's a take it or leave it, it's a 50-50. If I give you three options, gold, silver, bronze, or leave it, it's a 75-25. There's a 25% chance. Guess what? I've just made more likely you're going to do business with me by creating those options. So that's why I'm uh, quite quite evangelical about the maths and the logic. And, And then when it comes to the actual plan, first step in the plan is P for paradigm. It is a paradigm shift. You've got to accept this is going to be a change. So we've got a plan for the change. What is the driver for doing that? Well, I think one of the drivers for many law firms at the moment is going to be generative AI is here. It's all impacting legal services. If that's doing things in six minutes that we were previously doing in six hours, how do we charge? So paradigm shift. Second P is for pioneers, pioneer penguins. We've got to create an enthusiastic group of pioneers to do a project, and we don't have the no-no penguins in on this pioneering group. We listen to the no-no penguins, but we need the enthusiastic individuals who are going to do that, and we create a psychologically safe space for people to experiment and do this. Uh, the third one is plan. we've got to prepare a plan about how we're going to deliver this, a change management plan. We then have to permit we have to permit people to actually do the process, engage with the process. Part of the permission might be identifying clients we shouldn't act for anymore because they're not profitable and they're not nice people to deal with. So let's think about client selection. We're going to permit people to do that. Uh, We are going to promote. We are going to communicate to our staff, to our clients, to the people in our organization. This is the way we do things around here. We do not charge by the hour anymore. We will give you as a client options. We will say to you as a client, you will never get a bill from us you've not previously authorized. That's quite powerful. So we're going to promote that. We're going to have then the six P is prizes. We're going to look for quick wins. And we're going to celebrate these quick wins as and when they come up. Because if we we need to be demonstrating to our troops, the wider organization, this is happening. This is working. Look at this success we had. I have one one client I work with, employment lawyer, gave his client options, and the options were three. It was you want a series of new employment contracts for your business. I will create some templates for you. Send you the templates. You fill them in. I will check your homework. Two thousand pounds. Or I will do it for you in three weeks' time. Five thousand pounds. Or I will drop everything, do it for you tomorrow. £8,000. Client chose the £8,000 option because for them they needed it urgently. For them it was important for whatever reason was going on. Was the client happy? Delighted. I've got to the front of the queue and I can afford £8,000 and I want to do that. Was the lawyer happy? Absolutely happy. He's going to do half his chargeable target tomorrow with that one matter. Are the law firm owners happy? They should be delighted because, you know, here we are. It's not been linked to the time spent. So we're going to Celebrate those prizes. Uh, seventh P is persevere. Any change management project, okay, is a grind. We've got to keep on it. We've got to keep on it. pedal to the metal. We might need to bring in a new wave of pioneer penguins. We keep the enthusiasm going. We will have to make sure that any partners, managers, people in the business who are, you know, bringing the troops down, we might have to have serious conversations with people. Keep in the tent. And the eighth P is passion. We've got to have the passion to deliver the culture, the cultural change. We know where we want to get to. We set that out in our plan and we then have that cultural change. So those are the, those are the P's in a nutshell, which which follow Cotter's Eight steps. And um, within each section, I've tried to, to anticipate lots of questions. We've got lots of learning materials. We've got links to YouTube clips, exercises that people can do in each section. Because, you know, as I say, it's, it's not a memo from the CEO, make this happen. It really is. You've got to take a team with you. And that means hearts and minds. And it's the change curve. You know, if you've ever done anything about change curves, you'll know that it's the same as the bereavement curve, <laughs> you know. And yeah. when you uh, at that curve, when I talk to leaders of Rawford, that want to do this. I say, look, when you're at the bottom of the curve going up and if you think of a train, you're at the very front of the train on the fender. You're so enthusiastic about this. You're at the front of that train. But remember, your train's got 20 carriages and still coming down in the depression part of the curve, not with you, loads of your people. And we've got to don't forget about them just because you're up here. We've got to make sure that we take them with us. So it's a change management program
0: yeah no and I, I I love everything about that, and you mentioned sort of hearts and minds and i I agree with that and and passion that stood out to me as well because if you are truly truly passionate, then you know the other points that you mentioned around sort of you know persevering and all of that other stuff were absolutely carry through. Um, you know, we haven't really torn into the billable hour, believe it or not, after 250, 60, 70, 80 episodes, how many we've done. But this is the episode we're going to do it, Sean. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling quite verbose. So in your book, you share with the billable hour, the slowest horse wins the race. So could you briefly explain what the billable hour is and what your thoughts on it and could potentially AI be the answer to the ditching of it? Okay,
1: so we know if we've got a client who will pay us by the hour for everything we do, the worst performing lawyer will be the most profitable because they're just going to spend lots and lots of time doing things and the client will pay. So the slowest horse wins the race. Clients want a, a good service. They want it at a reasonable price. They want it at a price that they value, and we can talk about value later on. But the lawyers, our model is we need it really to drag out because we make more money. So our interests aren't aligned. So it's much better if if I give you three options and they're not linked to the time, and you say, Well, actually, I'm quite prepared to pay that gold the, the gold option or the bronze option, whatever it is. I I've, I've I've identified my base costs. I know what it's going to cost me to do this kind of work but then I'm going to create additional factors which allow me to score the work and I call it a lawyer scoring matrix where if you're really really busy and I you're working for me Rob and I say Rob here's another bit of work for you to do you're going to think oh look I'm I'm going to collapse here should you be doing that at the base cost not if I'm going to tip you over the edge uh, uh, you know, uh, can you do this? Can you delegate it? What has the client been like dealing up until now? Are they the client kind of client? And think of me as a litigator. Are they the kind of client who will turn up with a first draft of a witness statement, a chronological a chronology of all the events, and a paginated bundle of documents? Or are they kind of the client who's going to turn up with a shoebox and say, "Sort it out yourself," and now sit me down and I will tell you everything? Now I don't mind which kind of ones they are, but I'm going to do different price points on that because the one who wants it done manually using 20th century labour practices of me talking to you, writing it down, me then dictating it, sending it off to a secretary who sends it back to me, me reading it again, I will change it. This costs a fortune. It costs the client. A it has no value. Because what I end up with at that stage is a bit of paper that tells me what was in their heads in the first place. So I'd much rather have a conversation with a client that says, you know, have a go at this yourself first. It can save you some money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we need to do is just engage and think with clients about why do clients instruct lawyers? Why do clients instruct lawyers? And the answer is, usually they've got a problem that they're in pain or they've got something to gain. It's something like that. And we've got to think about what outcomes the clients want, because a conveyancing client is not really interested in the mortgage deed, the searches, and the replies to the preliminary yeah. inquiries. So they're not interested in that paper. What they're interested in is, can you get me in on the 14th of March? Because that's when the new term starts, and the kids have got to start a new school. Get me in on that date. And we've got to start thinking about what outcomes are that clients want. Now, your question about AI, how does that impact the billable hour? And... I think massively and one of the last interviews I had for the book was with a lady called Terry Motterset who is from the the College of Law in Australia and she's a lawyer and she looks at artificial intelligence and that interview that I had with her it was a couple of hours it's was fantastic was just was absolutely eye opening about the impact that AI is going to have on the legal profession is massive the gig I did with Suskin on the sixth of December, he was saying, Look, there's a lot of hype about artificial intelligence at the moment and he said, you know, people are saying it's it's not very good, but I can tell you that it the neural networks, the power of the neural networks that power it, are doubling in capability every three and a half months. So that means, in five years' time, it is going to be three hundred thousand times better than it is at the moment, and therefore, where some lawyers will be saying, "Oh, it's rubbish, it made a mistake. A lawyer used it in New York, it made a mistake. Yes, it did because that lawyer used the wider version of chat Gpt, but once law firm publishers, etc., start making walls gardens where the data sets of what LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, whatever the publishers are, have access to, we will use materials within those walled gardens, which will be safe places for us. And California has already started, uh, issued a practice direction that says if you use something on AI that now takes you six minutes, you can't charge for the 10 hours that you would ordinarily have done for that. The Legal Services Board are very keen to have elements of transparency about this so what's the choice for lawyers are we going to sit back and say well we won't use it then well if you don't use it you're going to go out of business pretty damn quick because you know is uh, our lawyers going to be replaced by artificial intelligence probably not but they will be replaced by other lawyers who are using artificial intelligence so i think it is important that we we embrace this because we've got to start thinking about how we can use it, how can we apply it in our businesses now? And I today, funnily enough, I you know, I have downloaded Chat GPT on my phone. I know lots of lawyers who haven't. One of the problems that lawyers listening to this will think one of the perennial problems that law firms will always have is how do we cross sell a will? How do we cross-sell a will to a client that we do the conveyancing for, a divorce or a matrimonial? How do we cross-sell and get them to do a will? Now, I think if we were to ask that of a group of wills, trusted probate lawyers, get them in a room and say, "How many can you come up with some uh, questions that we can ask clients about cross-selling a will? They'd come up with half a dozen, maybe eight. Chat GPT this morning while I was lying in bed came up with 14. That's how it's going to be used. It's going to create ideas for us. It's going to help us create conversations. And once those ideas, once we start, you know, getting the grey matter going, we can start being creative. So, yeah, I think it is the death of the billable hour.
0: Yeah. And, and look, we, we, we can't get into this, but I have very futuristic visions of AI is eventually going to ensure that we potentially don't have to work as hard as generations gone by. I, I can see a three-day working week being normal in the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it may be, because you know it's not about just flogging ourselves together. It's actually, let's try and have a fulfilling life embrace technology for the good but also there's so much of the world there's so much else to do out there and everything else that 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 goes with it Um, so I believe technology for good used by the right people for using the good things can make us more efficient do things better but also have a more fulfilling life and we don't have elements of stress burnout all of the years gone by that you know just due to churning and churning and churning and churning and churning and and then there's no getting off the hamster wheel Uh, and then eventually you retire and you think what was that all about um Sean I want to ask you one final question because you have given us so much wisdom throughout this um, episode. Where can people kind of stay connected with you? Because I believe along with the book, you've launched your own colony, the <laughs> VBP colony. So can you tell us what that is all about? I have, yeah. So whether well, you can get in touch with our LinkedIn, I'm on there, or um, don't do Twitter
1: because I don't do Twitter anymore, although I'm on there. But yeah, LinkedIn is the best place. So just put in Big Yellow Penguin and um, the chances are I'm going to come up. Uh, And the the VPP colony, what I wanted to do was create an online community of people who are interested in this subject matter. And so I thought, well, how could I do that? And somebody mentioned, oh, you can have these online little groups and networks. And I came across, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not getting paid by them, but I ought to be. I came across something called Mighty Networks, which is an American uh, product. And you create your own online community. So that's what what I've used. That's what I've created. It's launched officially yesterday. There were 89 people in there as of last night. And they're all people who I think are interested in learning more. So I'd encourage anybody to, you can access it via my website. It has the address in the book, et cetera, et cetera. If you're interested in learning more about value-based pricing, if you're interested in hanging out with people who are doing this, if you're interested in, some of the materials uh, come along to the Connolly and hang around with the other penguins, we're all there.
0: Yeah, I'd strongly encourage people to to do that. And I tell a fib because I do have one final question, Sean. What would be your piece of advice for those who are just starting out in their careers in 2024? And what do you wish you'd known when specializing in litigation? Okay,
1: uh, I would if somebody, uh, and I used to have this, I, I If somebody starting their career in law during their interview or on their CV had said that they are a great fan of Mitch Kalowski's reimagining legal services in the 21st century and they've read it, or I have read Richard Susskind's Tomorrow's Lawyers, that will put you at the top of a CV interview pile for me at that time, because it shows you know, with respect to universities and the way they train people, I really don't give a monkeys if people have done a mooting competition or not at university. Great. It's, it's a bit of fun. And you've, you've, you've learned to study, you've learned to argue. That's fine. But what I'm interested in is really is what's in between your two ears, how you're thinking. and uh, And if you're actually thinking about the business of law and how it works, then that is going to put you top of an interview pile for me. Uh, were I still interviewing people?
0: Um, And what was the second
1: question, part of your question?
0: It was... It was about specializing in litigation. I just want to briefly mention in there. this is the great quote that I always like by Wayne Gretzky, which you've exam- given an example to there, where Wayne Gretzky, famous hockey player, says, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going, right? So if you're reading those books, you are getting ahead of the curve. You're understanding where the industry is going. You're showing that you're entering it in this industry and you've got a thirst for learning and you want to be where the puck is going. And so I just love that example you gave. Um, my second question was around, um, what do you wish you'd known when specializing in litigation? that you know now
1: um i think i I'd, I'd, I'd wish i'd learned at university in my early days more about mediation because look the, the there's an old saying that the law is like Claridges open to everybody i don't know about you i haven't been to Claridges um and uh, and in theory i could go there and have obviously a very expensive lunch or a very expensive dinner uh, and so law and litigation is so costly it's so costly in terms of legal fees. it is so costly in terms of the emotional impact that it has on people and that it consumes people's lives and things like that you know and if we can as mediators, if you can bring people together and help them you know some mediators will talk about win win i don't think it's quite win win I think it's more of sharing the pain equally that you can have in disputes. But yeah, I think encouraging people to mediate very early on is something I wish I'd learned more. We all know that ADR stands for Alternative Dispute Resolution. However, there are some litigation lawyers out there who believe it stands, stands for Alarming Drop in Revenue. The Why do I want to settle something when uh, I could have it running for a number of years for fees? And I don't need the money that badly. Let's try and make people. See sense come together and resolve.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jordan, this has been a. A masterclass, start to finish, really. Um, Thank you so, so much for joining us. You've mentioned people can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Where's best for them to get access to the the book? And is there anything else you would like to shout out? We'll also make sure we shout out various web links for this episode too. Uh,
1: Well, well, the book's available on on Amazon in the United States, Canada, Australia, and the UK at the moment. Or you can order a a link from my website, takes you through to my publisher's page. Yeah, the, the book is out there. You know, I'm available for weddings, bar mitzvahs, all the kind of usual <laughs> stuff that is available. But yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got a number of speaking engagements lined up there. Details of those are on my website. But look, if anybody's got a question, I'm more than, as you, as you probably just discovered, Rob, I can talk about this subject all day. And I love <laughs> talking about this subject. So if anybody's got any questions, please do give me a ring, drop me a line. It's not going to cost you anything. And let's just try and make this profession a bit better for everybody.
0: Well said. And of course, don't ask Sean what his hourly rate is for weddings. Ask him the value he's going to bring to the wedding when he's on stage. But all jokes aside, it's been an absolute blast having you on, Sean. Wishing you lots of continued success with your your passion, your book, your pursuits, and everything else that you're getting up to. But for now, from all of us on the Levy Speaking Podcast, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, The Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com, for the link to join our community there. Over and out.